mark it up as you, some of you like to do. Uh, and as our young ones make their way, um, we, uh, we say, look, we're, we've been going through this study of Mark, and I think it's been wonderful to see uh, what it looks like to be on the way uh, towards, um, towards following Jesus as a lifestyle and as a commitment, because that's what it looks like to be disciples. But before we dive right in to chapter 13 of Mark, uh, it's also important that we take a moment. Uh, this is Memorial Day weekend after all, is it not? And uh, here, living at the Jersey Shore, we're reminded of it in different ways. And as I joked about last week, all of the, the people coming down, and you've probably seen it, especially with the beautiful weather. But isn't it also important that on a, uh, a weekend like this, and tomorrow being Memorial Day, that we stop and think and pause and reflect on why it is that we have an extra day off of work and why it is that people tend to, uh, to make a big deal this weekend. So it's important, I think, that we, um, we give the proper focus to where it should be. And so we know that Memorial Day is a day that our country has set aside for us to reflect on the freedoms that we have been given because of those who have given everything, have given their very lives so that we can live in this great country that we do. Many of us know relatives, some of the uh, younger people, we might have distant relatives, maybe we never even met, uh, that died serving this country, men and women alike. And so we want to take the time to reflect on that. Uh, And I would encourage you to do that, even if you have a barbecue later on, or tomorrow you're going to the beach or whatever, that you would remember why it is that we call this Memorial Day weekend. Um, and uh, that we do it with reverence, that we do it with respect, because we do have many great freedoms uh, in this country. And we often, just like any other human being, we take them for granted. But I think that's part of why we set a day aside, so that we don't. And we were reminded that um, there are many people, men and women, that gave their very lives so that we could be sitting here in a church proclaiming the gospel. Is that not true? That is true. So um, if you would bow your heads once again, I just want to lead us in prayer um, for those uh, families of those that, are, uh, that have fallen in defense of our country and our freedoms especially. So let's pray together. Lord, your word says, uh, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that precious in the sight of you, our Lord, is the death of your faithful servants. So as we seek you and as we seek to follow you as a church in the footsteps of Jesus, we pray right now that your hand of blessing on our nation, on our military, and on their families. But Lord, especially this day, we lift up all the family and friends of our fallen men and women in uniform. We pray your peace would guard them and would guide them, give them hope, help them remember the sacrifices of their loved ones, not only with sorrow, but with tears of pride and of understanding, knowing that their loved ones did not die in vain, but secured our liberties for yet another generation. So we thank you, Father, for the freedoms we have in this country. But would you help us to remember always, as we do, especially this day, the great cost of that freedom. Let us never forget the bravery 
of the men and women who have gone before us, serving with honor and courage, giving the greatest of all sacrifices. And may we remember always how God, you gave the greatest sacrifice of all for us, for the greatest freedom we could ever enjoy. And that is the death and the life of your son, Jesus. So as we remember this day, those who have fallen in defense of this country's freedoms, may we do so in light of the death and, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the great promise that we will one day in heaven see our loved ones that have gone before us. We look forward to that day. But until that day, may we never take for granted these freedoms that we have because of those who gave all. And in Jesus' precious name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So would you now turn your attention to Mark chapter 13. And as always, it will be up on the screen in just a moment for us, and we'll read it through. And yes, we're going to cover the whole chapter of Mark 13. And this is one of those times where we bite off maybe a little bit more than we can chew. Uh, But it's okay, and there's a reason, and you'll see that sort of unfold as we go through it. But you know, these last few days have been been sort of bittersweet for Claudia and I, and I might have uh, mentioned this or alluded to this last week, but we are now officially empty nesters in that our youngest... Yeah, some of you, uh, you understand. Some of us are cheering, right? That's why I say it's bittersweet. It's okay. And uh, our youngest, Julia, uh, went down to work at Harvey Cedars Bible Conference. We send our teens there every summer. She's working there, uh, and she just left Friday afternoon, and she'll be working down there the whole summer. And when she comes back in August, uh, she'll have about a week and a half before we bring her to college. And so, yes, we are those empty nesters. And so, of course, we. We, you know, we saw her off on Friday, and then we're just sitting looking at each other. So what do we do now? And, but you know, we were, of course were reminiscing, and had been all week with Julia, and then just individually as parents, reminiscing about her childhood, about all of our kids, but especially something special about the youngest one uh, leaving the nest, right? And um, just remembering uh, what it was like when when uh, Claudia was pregnant with Julia, and you know, all pregnancies look different, right? And um, so I was just kind of asking Claudia to remind me of some of the things that were special about when Julia was being born. And, you know, in fact, she, um, Julia wanted to come into this world really early, about two months early. And so Claudia had to be on bed rest. And some of you, you know what that's like, and maybe you've experienced that or have family members that have. But um, it was too early for Julia to be born. And so Claudia had to be on complete bed rest for about two months. And she was on medications and, you know, being watched by the doctors to make sure that she didn't go into premature labor. Uh, and so we were very cautious about that because about two months you know, ahead of time, about seven months in, it looked like she was going to be born. There was all these signs that she was ready to be born, but it wasn't the time yet. And so we had to, to take those measures to make sure that we, we had to wait for the proper time. And of course there's always a due date, right? And that's sort of a general guide. But um, so when it was time and it was actually safe that Julia could be born, the doctors took Claudia off the medicine and the doctors were watching her. Then, of course, Julia didn't want to be born then. And so then it was delayed and delayed. And so finally, when uh, we went to the hospital, when it was time, we went and, uh, and Claudia reminded me that, that she gave birth very quickly. Didn't some, some uh, you know, moms will stay in the hospital for a long time. 
going through that and you have the, the birth pains and you have the contractions and is it times that not? Sometimes you go to the hospital and then you're sitting home because it's not time yet. But once we actually did get to the hospital, Julie was ready and uh, the labor was pretty, pretty quick. And what's funny is that my sister-in-law, Carol, who was up here at the time, she was, uh, she was coming to watch Julia be born and she was so excited she had wanted to have children herself and couldn't as they adopted and so she wanted to be there when her sister gave birth to perhaps our last child and and so she was rushing to get there but then she realized Carol did that you know all that we had been through it's really Julie was so predictable that she probably had time and so she stopped off at Dunkin Donuts to get a coffee and in those extra five minutes she got there five minutes late and missed the birth. And so, of course, Julia always reminds her, her Aunt Carol about that, that you missed it because you stopped to get Dunkin' Donuts coffee. But the idea is that, you know, even with a due date and with all the calculations and even the birth pains and the contractions, it's still unpredictable, isn't it? You cannot predict when a baby is going to be born. You have ideas, there's some signs, and there's indications, but you just don't know. The birth pains mean that it's coming, but just not yet. But see, this is what Jesus tells his disciples about the end of all things, the end times. Because that is what we're going to be looking at today. And some of us are pretty interested in these things. And we talk often about, man, we see what's going on in the world. And this must be close to when Jesus is returning. So Jesus actually gives us a lot of detail. More than what we can cover in in one Sunday morning message. But he gives his disciples, and of course for us today, a lot of detail and a lot of um, uh, reflection on what the end times are going to look like. And specifically different parts of it. And so um, he goes on to, to talk to his disciples because they asked him a particular question. And they asked him, what it, what it was going to look like, what to expect, and when these things were going to happen. And so I want to just kind of quickly recap before we read chapter 13 together where we are in Mark. If you remember, we've been making our way to Jerusalem following the footsteps of Jesus. He comes into Jerusalem at the beginning of what we call Holy Week or the Passion Week. And he goes into the temple and he spends the first few days... Uh, in the temple, he comes out at night and goes back in and we see him over, uh, overturning the, the tables of the money changers and he's teaching his disciples and he's looking at all that's going on. Remember last week he noticed the widow giving her two mites or two little coins and he noticed what was going on. But what we, we need to remember is that Jesus was not pleased at all with what he found in the temple. Remember when he was um, riding into Jerusalem on... Um, uh, you know, on Palm Sunday, right, the triumphal entry, and he's riding in on the, on the back of the donkey, and in one of the gospel accounts it says that he stopped and he wept. He wept over Jerusalem because they didn't know the peace that he wanted to bring them. And he knew, of course, what was about to happen in a few short days. And so Jesus was not pleased at all. He was saddened. He was angered. He was frustrated by what he found happening in the temple. And so that's where we are today, that Jesus actually has left the temple. Last week we saw the last thing that happened in the temple courts was when he saw the widow giving her two small coins, and that was it. So that it's the end of his public ministry, it's the end of his time at the temple, 
this is probably Wednesday evening now of that week. So we know what's going to happen the next night when he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples, the Last Supper. But this is probably Wednesday evening of that week. He has left the temple for good, and now he is just teaching his disciples and them alone, just privately teaching them. And so as they leave the temple, one of the disciples asks him a question. You'll see that in our reading in a moment. He asks him, and he points out all of the beautiful uh, buildings and display of the temple itself and Jesus makes a very pointed comment about what you can see with the eye. And then, of course, they say, well, what do you mean? And then he goes on to explain what is going to happen. But here's the context, church. It's all about judgment. It's all about Jesus saying, here is the final judgment that will come to the people of Israel specifically because of their disobedience. But mixed in there is a lot of detail. And, uh, of course, we will end our time together with what we call the so what. So what does it mean to us today? Jesus talked about these future things. What should we do with that today? Should we be looking for every sign and reading the newspaper to see what's going on with Russia and China to see, oh, where is that in Scripture and what's going to happen? Or where should our focus truly be? And so Jesus has much to say about future events. And so... I think if it's important to Jesus, it should be important to us. Is that right? And so we want to give it its, its due attention. And so I want to read that now. And this is um, Mark. It's the whole chapter. Uh, and so I'm going to read it. And I, I, I don't let it overwhelm you. There's no way that we're going to be able to, uh, to cover every specific thing. You're going to have questions when we're done reading it. Say, I wonder what it means when he says this or this or what does it mean abomination of desolation? That's a really weird thing. We, I will cover, uh, I think, you know, what some of the, the main things to focus on so we get a good uh, understanding of what Jesus is teaching. But it's also one of these topics and the, one of these sort of messages and sermons that we need to go deeper on our own and study. And I would love to do like a whole, you know, uh, a Sunday morning teaching on this to go even deeper. But, you know, the Tuesday morning men's Bible study just recently went through the whole book of Revelation. And that was incredible. And a lot of what we're going to read today, you won't understand if you don't also then look at Revelation and even go back in Daniel. So there's a lot in here. So let me read it for us. Please follow along. It'll be on the screen or read in your Bibles. Um, And again, you'll get the, the general idea of what Jesus is talking about. But don't let some of the details trip you up, because we'll talk about some of the important ones in just a moment. So here's what it says in Mark 13. Remember, they came out of the temple, and here's what happens next. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What an answer he gives, right? And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. 
This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not even go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas... For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, for I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Wow, what an amazing chapter. Now, we see this sermon 
We see this elsewhere in Scripture. This is called the Olivet Discourse. Right? The Olivet Discourse is basically a message, a sermon by Jesus. Right? Kind of like the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Olivet Discourse. Why? Because He gave it to His disciples while they were on the Mount of Olives. Nothing other than that. And that's why it even says he would, they were on the Mount of Olives and they asked Jesus this question privately. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's also found in Luke 21. It's found in Matthew 24 and 25. Just for your notes, for reference, Matthew's account is much more in-depth, much longer. Matthew includes the parables of the ten virgins and the talents. And he goes on to give more explanation. But here Mark, as we've been saying all along, is very succinct. But there's a lot in here. Because then after this chapter, we see things begin to work very quickly and move very quickly towards the Last Supper and, of course, His betrayal and crucifixion and the resurrection. And so this is Jesus teaching on the end times about His return, about the tribulation, about what it's going to look like. And so how we're going to proceed today is, you know, normally I'll go through a verse at a time or a couple of verses But today I need to take some bigger chunks. There'll be a couple of verses I'll highlight, but I want to teach through a couple of bigger chunks, but make sure that we get to make sure that we get to our so what. So what is it that we can glean from this great long passage today? And if you're like me, when you read this all in one shot, it can be a little overwhelming because there's a lot in there. You're like, well, when is he talking about? Is this like for right now? Is this that thing we, we hear about called the tribulation and when is that rapture thing going to happen? Is that happening here and in the middle of it at the end and then Jesus comes back and there's a kingdom and is that happening now or is it really going to be on earth? And when do the wicked get judged and all of that? And so I want to give just a brief description and overview of that today. Just kind of picture if we had a drone flying over you know, this sermon and this Olivet Discourse and we kind of get a, a good view of what's happening. Maybe not all of the details But we want to see, of course, how it's going to apply to our lives. And so it's crucial that we understand these things. So I I don't want to dismiss or downplay anything that Jesus talked about. Even if I can't cover everything in detail, it doesn't mean that it's not vitally important for us. But I want to keep the entire chapter in view. Kind of work through it. We'll work through it together and then get to our application. Uh, Again, the parallel accounts are found in Luke 21. Matthew 24 with uh, added Matthew 25 as well. Right? So here's sort of a, an overview to give some context. These are important points to understand so we have a context of what's going on. There are many believers, brothers and sisters in the Lord today that will, I believe, misinterpret these signs, misinterpret this passage because it all starts with what we call a consistent hermeneutic. And that simply means how you interpret the Bible. And I believe if we're going to interpret the Bible literally, just as it's written for us in a very plain language, that we are to do it from beginning to end. We see there's many of our brothers and sisters that say, yes, we, we, we uh, interpret the Bible literally, but not when it comes to prophetic discourse like this. But what I tend to believe is it makes the most sense to me And the best way to interpret the Scriptures, if you're going to do it consistently from Genesis to Revelation, interpret it literally. And so we should approach this passage the same way. And so when we do that, here is what we come to. That this teaching in the Olivet Discourse is in reference to Israel 
not the church. I want to say that again, because this is important for the context. It doesn't mean that this is important to us, because it is. But in the context of what's going on, Jesus is speaking these words specifically to the people of Israel and about their future and about their judgment for being disobedient. But there, of course, is a lot that we need to know as his disciples because he is talking to his disciples who are believers, right? And, of course, Jesus knew that 2,000 years later we would be sitting here reading this. And so this is very important to us. But, you know, it's been said that the Bible is for all of us, but it wasn't written to all of us. Does that make sense? I mean, this is written and, and spoken specifically to the people of Israel. It is for all of us, but not everything is written directly to us. Does that make sense? And we need to know that because then we can really go astray in the way that we interpret these things. And so Christ was speaking of God's future program for Israel. This, what we call the Olivet Discourse, is about specifically the future tribulation. He uses that word. And the end of that time, right before Christ returns to set up His kingdom on earth, which I believe is a thousand years of literal reigning Christ on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years on this earth when Satan is bound. And that's really not in view of what we're talking about here, but that's sort of how things play out. And so God's program for us, the church, right now in this age, this age of this church, this age of grace, concludes with what we often call the rapture. You've heard that word, right? We say the rapture is when Jesus returns for us, not all the way to the earth, but we meet Him in the clouds, and that is the church. You see that in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, right? When, we, when it says that the dead in Christ will rise first. We talked about it a few weeks ago, that we'll get to, to see our loved ones again. We're caught up in the clouds with Jesus. That's Jesus coming back for His church. And we believe that can happen at any moment. And that's called the doctrine of imminency, that Jesus, his return for us is imminent for the church. Okay? And um, in a moment, I'm going to uh, put up a, a visual for you that I think will help a little bit. But I want to give some quick definitions first, and I'll show that. We can leave that up there as we go through it. And so we know what the church is. We are the church, right? The church are all believers now. Since Pentecost, we saw that in the beginning of the book of Acts, since the giving of the Holy Spirit, when the church was instituted, God, Jesus says He's building His church. So anybody today that becomes a believer in Christ becomes a part of the church. Israel is not the church. We have not, uh, as the church, sort of subsumed all of the promises that God made to Israel, like the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant, law, right? That was all for the people of Israel and I believe that the church and Israel are separate in God's plan for uh, the future. When it says saved, you're going to see that too. When it says saved, it doesn't always mean salvation, spiritual salvation. The word saved in Greek can also mean like you're saved from physical harm. Like if you were about to fall and somebody caught you, he saved you from falling, see? And so that word saved in this discourse means being saved from physical wrath and destruction and torture and torment and all of that. Okay, keep that in mind. When it says the elect, he's not cho- talking about the church. He's talking about the people of Israel, the chosen one, God's chosen people, the elect. So in the context of this today, the elect is the people of Israel. 
When he says the age or the end of the age, it means this age we're in right now, the church age. Right from the beginning of the church, the age of grace, we often call it. Okay? Which will come to an end at some point. Jesus is talking about that. We talked about the rapture. When he says tribulation, we believe that there is an actual period of time of seven years that is going to happen in the future. It's not right now. Although some days we feel like this has got to be the tribulation. There is an actual tribulation from scriptures. Again, we can't go into all the details. We believe that it clearly says, when we read the Bible plainly, that it's going to be a seven-year period, a literal seven years, of a tribulation that will get worse and worse. We're even going to read something that designates the middle point of that after about three and a half years, and then things get immensely more difficult for the people that are still on earth. And so that's what we call the tribulation. So Jesus is talking about that future time of tribulation, those seven years. Then there is the second coming or the second advent. Remember, Jesus came first to this earth, right? At Christmas time, we celebrate that. His first coming, his first advent. And Jesus said he would return, didn't he? We look forward to that. He's, he rose again and he ascended to the, 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 he ascended to the Father and he said, I will return. We look forward to that. But the second coming of Jesus actually to the earth to reign, that's not the rapture. They're separate. Okay, And so the second coming is when He comes after the tribulation to conclude all of His judgments and He sets up His throne on earth. And you know what's beautiful, church? It also says in Scripture that we as believers who will already be with Him because of the rapture, that we will get to reign with Christ. Is that awesome? We will get to reign with Him somehow. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We're going to reign with Him during those thousand years. Okay, So, you can put up that graphic now. uh, And you see it's a little blurry, but I think... The idea is, not so much all the words, but to get an idea of what that looks like. All right? And so, again, you want to look at Daniel chapter 9 and almost all of Revelation to help understand Jesus, what he's saying here. But Daniel gave this prophecy about 444 B.C. Okay? He talks about these weeks, these 70 weeks, and there's significance in these numbers. Again, we can't get all into it today. But all that happened before... Jesus' death is the 69 weeks, 483 days of a 360-day year. Okay, it comes out to 69 weeks. So there was one week left to happen. So Jesus dies, A.D. 33, begins what we call the church age. See that that's where we are right now. The rapture happens, which means at any moment, even during this sermon, Jesus could return for His church. There does not have to be any sign... Nothing else. So all these signs Jesus is talking about in our passage, we'll look at a few, they don't have to happen before He comes back for us, the church. That's our beautiful hope, that He could come back at any moment. And when He does come back, called the rapture, that then triggers the beginning, we believe, of the seven years of tribulation, which is known as Daniel's 70th week. So if you go back to Daniel 9 especially, he talks about these 70 weeks, Okay, 69 have already happened. That seventh week, those seven years of tribulation will happen after the rapture. Okay? If you're confused, it's okay. We'll get there. All right? There's a lot in here. Again, this isn't necessarily the focus of our message, but it's an important context. At the end of those seven years of tribulation, again, the Olivet Discourse is about those seven years specifically. 
at the end, we see it's called the, the, um, the day of the Lord, when His return, the second coming. That's when He actually comes back to earth physically, sets up His rule and reign on the throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's called the millennium, the thousand years. Not the millennium falcon, it's the millennium, okay? It's not when the millennium falcon comes back and brings Jesus with Him. No, it's not what it is. At the end of those thousand years, the great white throne judgment, when all of those who are not believers are finally judged, that's the eternal state, the lake of fire, all of that. You can leave that up for a little while to give an idea of it, okay? I know it's riveting stuff, right? We're getting there. But why is it important that I mention all that? Because there is a specific sequence of events, and if we're going to understand chapter 13 of Mark, his teaching on the tribulation and the, the coming Son of Man and what the disciples wanted to know about, then we need to understand where it all sort of falls in. So the next thing to happen concerning us is the rapture, where Jesus comes back for His church. That's not the second coming. Then seven years of the tribulation, which is what Jesus is talking about here. Then Christ returns. That's His second coming all the way to earth to establish His millennial rule. Okay, so... In the beginning of our passage today, they asked Jesus, right? One of the disciples says, hey, look at this beautiful temple. Isn't it beautiful, Jesus? Look at all these amazing buildings and wonderful stones. And, and what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, yeah, isn't it nice? I mean, it was a marvel, a wonder of the known world. And Jesus says, yeah, you see these buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That was his answer to the disciple, who was just all excited about how beautiful the temple and how marvelous it was. And so, of course, it says then in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, some of those disciples, they came up to him and they're like, "Uh, okay, I think we need to follow up on this. Can you kind of tell us when these things will be and what the signs are going to be? And like, what has to happen? What are our expectations? And then Jesus begins to teach them. And again, not going through verse by verse, but it's interesting and important that he starts with saying, don't be deceived. First thing he says, don't be deceived. There's going to be false teachers. And he says it again later. There's going to be those claiming to be me or not even to be Jesus, but to be a leader who who can perform miracles like him and will lead people astray, even believers in Jesus Christ. So he says, be careful, be aware do not be led astray. Because then he's about to go on to give these signs. You see, that's important as well. He's about to say, here's some things that are going to happen. But the first set of signs he gives is important. The first set of signs he gives, he says, these are not the true signs. He goes, these are like the beginnings of birth pains. It's like when a, a woman goes to give birth, she says, oh, I'm having contractions, I think the baby's coming. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you some signs. They're like those contractions, but they're, they're just saying that at some point soon, the baby will be born, right? But Jesus says, these are just the beginning of the birth pains, not even the actual contractions and birth pains themselves, just the beginning of them. But he says, he gives some signs and he says, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be all these false prophets and teachers. Beware of them. And there's going to be natural disasters. I mean, how often do you, you listen to the news? I, I tend to say read the newspaper. I don't know how many of you still read the newspaper. But how often do you go to your phone and you check the news, right? And you see something happening. I mean, out in the Midwest, terrible tornadoes, right? And it, it's easy to look at those and be like, Jesus has got to be coming back soon. It feels like we hear more and more about it. 
There's rumors of war. Jesus says, when you hear about wars and even rumors of wars and natural disasters and, and false prophets, like false spiritual leaders, have there not been many throughout history? Whether they claim to be the God of the Bible or not, they were pe- leading people astray spiritually. He says, all these things surely are necessary and are going to happen. But he says, the time is not yet. He says in verse 7, all these things have to happen, but the end is not yet. So, one thing, we need to be careful. We are to be on guard and to watch, to be prepared, but not to make too much of the signs. Because Jesus says, these things are happening, and they're necessary, like the beginning of the birth pain. So we see that, yeah, we're definitely getting closer to the end. I believe that. But, he says, the end is not yet. And he says, nation will rise against, rise against nation, earthquakes, all those things, famines. He goes, but those are just the beginning of the birth pains. He says, be on guard. Because you're going, to be, you're going to be tempted and tried and all of that. So again, when we keep it in the context of the tribulation, he's not actually talking about the specific disciples that he was talking to, or even to us that they were going to go through that. But here's why it's important. Well, why would Jesus be teaching his disciples, or even the church, if we're not going to live through this tribulation, why does it matter? If you remember a few weeks ago, I read this verse, I believe it's Psalm 145, where it says, one generation will commend the mighty works of God to the next. See, that's our role now, church. We worship God, but we are to tell everybody about the good news of Jesus. We are to tell the next generations. I mean, we have our young ones down the hall learning about Jesus and about hope and peace and We are to continue to do that because at some point when Jesus raptures the church, that tribulation begins, there will be people still living, of course, that will not have made that profession of faith, but they will do so during that tribulation. And it will be very difficult for them. So don't they need to know the truth? Don't they need to have that hope and that promise? So we don't know when it's going to happen, so we're just to continue to share the gospel and to live it out. It sounds so simple, but yet so profound. That is what we're called to do. We don't know when that last generation is going to be of the church before Jesus raptures the church. Maybe again, maybe it's while we're living, maybe not. But our job, our role, is to continue to trust and obey, to tell others about Jesus, so that when that last generation comes, they enter in to that tribulation, the ones who have not yet believed, and they say, yes, I remember my grandfather. My parents told me about this. I do know the truth. I, they said these things were going to happen. And they're not around. It must have been the rapture. Yes, we now know. See, that's important that we understand that. So Jesus is teaching His disciples, saying, yeah, there's going to be tribulation. You're going to be uh, persecuted. Now, of course... There was a current application. Didn't they get persecuted for their faith? Aren't Christians around the world being persecuted? Yes. So all of that is true. But he says during that future tribulation, it's going to be immensely more difficult to be a believer. And we can't even imagine what that looks like. But he calls it a unique time. In Matthew 24, 21, he says there will be a great tribulation Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Jesus says it's going to be worse than any time prior. We were talking earlier today before church about the flood. Worse than the flood. 
So Jesus says, there'll be a time of great tribulation such as never been seen. So let's keep moving forward. So he's saying all these signs, the wars, the rumors of wars, natural disasters, false proverbs, they're merely precursors to the main event, okay, to that great tribulation. Those things are happening now, but what's going to happen is their, their frequency and their severity will increase, just like birth pains. Because as you get closer to giving birth, don't those pains get, they come quicker, don't they? The contractions are closer and closer together. Jesus gives us that example because we can understand it. And so, yes, we sit here today saying, I feel like those contractions are getting closer and closer together. But yet we still, we don't know the time. He says, here's some signs. They have to happen, but it's not yet the end. So there are some true signs. And he says, when you see this thing take place, the abomination of desolation. Now, again, we can't go into all of it, but here's what that means. When the deceiver, the Antichrist, in the middle of these seven years, sets up his throne and worship of him right in the temple that will have to have been rebuilt, because right now there is not a temple, right? Somehow it will get rebuilt. That he then sets himself up to be worshipped right in the middle of that. So those seven years of tribulation are going to be terrible. People will be coming to Christ. But the second half of those seven years, Jesus says, that great tribulation, it'll be like nothing you've ever seen before or ever to come. Because the Antichrist, who will be deceiving all the way, it's almost like he's going to be deceiving people that the world that he's good and righteous and, and holy and altruistic. But then halfway through, he reveals his true person. He says, now you're going to worship me. And he sets himself up in the temple. Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation. It's an abomination to God. It desolates in the, the consecrated temple. And then what happens is he says, where he ought not to be. Because it's not where the Antichrist should be. So he says, that's what it's going to look like. When you see that happen, you know that Jesus, His second coming, that He is coming back soon. That's what he's talking about in this whole Olivet Discourse. They asked him, he said, what's it going to look like? He says, the temple will be destroyed. But now often, and this is important, church, that often with prophecies, if you look in the Old Testament, there was a current application and a future application. The current one foreshadowed the future. Okay? And so when Jesus says the temple will be destroyed in 70 AD, so about what, 40 or so years later after Jesus died, the temple in Jerusalem were sacked and destroyed by the Romans. Where not one stone was left. You know, we also know from history that what happened is there was, and this is really interesting, there was so much gold inside the temple that they used for worship, the Jewish people, that when it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, of course, after that, what did they do? They went in to ransack it to get all of that gold. But they set fire to it as well. So anything in there that could burn would burn so hot that all the gold melted in between the rocks and stones. So how are they going to get all that gold out? Take one stone out from the other. Chisel those stones. Break those stones. So Jesus says there's not one stone left on top of the other. So of course it came to fruition in 70 AD, but it also is a foreshadow of what's going to happen during those seven years of tribulation. Specifically, Jesus says, okay, you want to know what the signs that you should look for are? When the Antichrist sets up worship of himself in the temple, about halfway through the abomination of desolation, you know things are going to happen. That's what Jesus is talking about. Then he says, 
If God wasn't so merciful and He didn't cut those days short, those last three and a half years, let's say, of the tribulation, He said everybody would die. Nobody would make it physically. That's how bad it's going to be. But because God is merciful, He cut the days short. You know, when, when I mentioned before that the, um, uh, the men's Bible study went through Revelation, we all came away with that study saying God is merciful. You don't think about it, thinking about Revelation, all the judgments, right? The scrolls and the trumpets and all those, but God is merciful. Why? Because after every judgment, He gives opportunity for people to believe and repent. Doesn't He do that with us? When we're disobedient, there's discipline and there's judgment, but He gives us time to repent. Because God is merciful. So Jesus says, in His mercy, He cuts the days short so that people... He says, if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. Again, that's not saying you have to endure tribulation and then you get saved spiritually. Again, that would throw us off, right? And that doesn't even jive with how Jesus talks about salvation. So what that Greek word means, saved, means you're going to be that those people living in the tribulation will be saved from any further persecution. Do you see that? Physically, because he just said that if, if God wasn't merciful, that people are just going to die and there'll be nobody left? He said, so the elect, the chosen, the people of Israel, those people that then believed in Jesus as Messiah, he said they will be saved. They will be taken away from all that persecution. They will be spared. That's what it means. See that? That's what that means. And so we put all this together. Again, there's so many other details we could go through. We say, so what? Here's a few things to just take with us as we leave. When Jesus talked about the temple, the the disciples said, man, isn't this beautiful? He said, on the outside, there's external beauty and glory, but on the inside, there's corruption. Isn't that true? Because he looks at the temple and he saw how beautiful it looked on the outside, but didn't he spend that whole week on the inside of the temple seeing how people were just giving for pride and and they were misusing what he called the house of his father, the house of prayer? So we don't want that to happen to us, church, that we just look so good on the outside, but on the inside we're corrupt, because that's what he said about the temple and its worship. You know, in Matthew 24 and 25, his account of this Olivet Discourse, right before that in, in, in Matthew 23, if you remember, Jesus has what's called the seven woes to the Pharisees, and he calls them whitewashed tombs. You know what a whitewashed tomb looks like? On the outside, think of it like a mausoleum. It looks so beautiful and white and perfect and clean and pure. But on the inside, there's a dead body. Jesus says that's what the temple is like. So church, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be just worried about on the outside what's looking good on the outside and not caring for our heart and our soul. It's the opposite. We should let what's happening on the inside then be reflected on the outside. Second thing disobedience always leads to discipline god disciplines those that he loves and he loves us his his followers his church but all throughout history adam and eve were disobedient and there was discipline the people then he said to go and and spread throughout the world the tower of babel they were disobedient there was discipline with the flood they were disobedient so the flood was the discipline the people of israel we see in the old testament there was disobedience and they were disciplined because they were led into captivity Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. They rejected God's rule. See, church, when we reject God's sovereign rule in our lives as Lord, there will be disobedience. 
Uh, because we're disobedient, there will then be discipline on His part. He will discipline those that He loves. But we should expect that when we reject God's rule, when we go our own way. And third, there's this promise of peace that is postponed. See, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying the kingdom is offered to you, people of Israel. They rejected Jesus, so they rejected that offer, so therefore that offer is postponed. We are now in that sort of postponement, the church age. So everybody that believes in Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike, become believers. We're part of the church, but it's postponed because one day after he raptures the church during that tribulation, Jesus will then finish judging the people of Israel, the people of the earth. He will then keep all of his promises to his chosen people. That is a big part of it. But you see, whenever there is disobedience, there is a postponement of peace. Remember I said Jesus rode into Jerusalem during the beginning of that last week, and he wept. He says, well, if if only you knew the peace that I wanted to bring to you. Jesus wants to bring peace into your life. But when we're disobedient, when there, is, when there is unconfessed sin in our heart, don't we miss out on the blessing of peace? We don't feel peaceful. We, we, we feel fearful and anxious and depressed and angry. We don't know why. It's because perhaps we're being disobedient to God and to His Word. And so we postpone and delay the blessing of peace when we are disobedient. That's what happened to the people of Israel. They were disobedient. They rejected God's sovereign rule in Jesus. And so therefore, they had to put off that peace until they were ready. Until they were ready. It said in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's saying to the people of Israel, You won't see me again until you're ready to confess me as Lord. And finally, he says to us, Stay awake. Stay awake. He ends the whole thing. He says, Stay awake. Be on guard. Don't be caught off guard. Lest the Lord returns. And for that great day of judgment, for those going through the tribulation, and he says, And you're caught off guard, not waiting and and wanting Him and being prepared. So for us today, what does it mean? Let's set our eyes on Jesus and not the signs. Let's be thankful for the gifts, yes, but more so for the giver of the gifts. We are to transfix, we sang earlier, transfix our eyes on Him. So yes, we are to be aware of these signs. And be aware that things are happening. There are the beginnings of birth pains right now. In the tribulation to come, they will be those severe birth pains. As those contractions get closer and closer together, Jesus says, be on guard and watch out because He is about to come back to set up His kingdom. But for now, let's keep our eyes fixed on Him. That He would be our vision. And that we would look to Him and His sovereign rule in our lives. We recognize the signs. We stay awake. But we keep our eyes open looking to Jesus. Amen? Amen. As Pastor said earlier, we have freedom in worship. And you could stay and remain seating, or you could stand and sing to our God, but 
just listen to these first few words in light of what we just heard. And he says, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. And how true is that? that there's going to be so many things that distract us, but if we keep our gaze and our vision on him, how different our worlds would look. Let's sing. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art, thou my best thought, by day or sleeping thy presence my light be thou my wisdom be thou my wisdom and thou my true word I ever Thou with me, Lord, Thou my great Father, and I Thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with Thee one. Riches I heed not. Riches I heed not. Nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance. Now and always. Thou and thou only. But first. Sing high king, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's sing it, oh God, be my everything. Oh God, be my 